Scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is, what was, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars uh, in heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. May he add his blessing to it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last few months, we've been trying to get a better understanding of the practical ways we can devote ourselves to growing in the knowledge and experience of the grace God has given us in Christ Jesus. The paths that the Lord has called us to walk and down in order to grow in our communion with Christ are simple paths, but they are demanding paths. If we would grow in, in our relationship with Christ, then it must start with a fresh devotion to uh, ingesting the Word of God, devouring it, memorizing, studying, hearing it preached, meditating upon it. If we would grow in our knowledge of the grace and experience of the grace of Christ, then we must devote ourselves to prayer. Uh, it is a very simple reality that we must be those who pray if we want to grow in communion with Christ. And yet, 
Those of us who have sought to be faithful in doing that know how demanding that simple discipline is. If we would grow in our relationship with Christ Jesus, then we must, in faith, uh, identify ourselves with him in the waters of baptism. We must not be ashamed to unite ourselves to him and covenant with him in those waters that picture and typify our union with him. If we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we must join in holy fellowship with the saints around the Lord's table and remind one another of the great hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We even must be those who take up the means of fasting to make our voices heard on high if we're going to be those who grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these are very simple realities to understand, but very difficult truths to put into practice. And, um, the means of grace that really makes all of them possible is the one that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, which is uh, faith as a means of grace. Now, to help us get a picture of what it, what it really looks like to use faith as a means of grace, we've been camping out in Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. And it was not my intention to be in this chapter this long, but I think there's so much for us to see and to take to heart in relation to what it means to live a life of faith in these chapters that in good conscience, I just can't pass over them. Um, so what we were seeing in chapter 10 is basically that we have this call as believers to endure in doing the will of God. If we would be those who would receive the promised reward, the, the reward that God has guaranteed for those who belong to him, if we would be those who would receive the riches of that promise and the greatness of it, then we must be those who endure in doing God's will. The end of chapter 10, it shows us what that will is, that in all things, no matter what we're doing, it is the will of God that we live lives of faith, because this is the righteous one in the eyes of God, those who live by faith. Chapter 10 ends on that declaration. You remember, we are not of those uh, who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And that launches us into chapter 11. So after we've had this call to endure in doing the will of God and endure in living a life of faith, chapter 11 is here to help us understand what that means. Because when we're talking about faith, when we're talking about believing and living a life of faith, it can sound very theoretical. Just kind of up there in, in the ethos, right? The, uh, the, the ether. The, 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 the mindset. It's just, just a theoretical, speculative type discipline. We walk by faith, live by faith. Okay, that's, that's great. I know I need to do that. But what does that look like? Well, that's where chapter 11 comes to give us some help. Now, we notice in verse 1 in chapter 11, that the help we get starts with defining what faith is. If we're going to learn to live a life of faith, we have to understand what that faith actually is. What is it in its substance? And uh, verse 1 tells us what faith is. It's the gift of being awakened to realities that are yet unseen. It is having the substance of all that we hope for in Christ in some measure being planted in our souls so that we know, even though we have not seen those realities, we know that they are true and they are real. We are living now with the gift of faith. We are living in light of the evidence that the Holy Spirit has given us in faith, that the things we hope for exist, the things that are not yet seen are true. 
That is what we're talking about when we're talking about faith. And then later on in Hebrews 11, uh, the Holy Spirit leads us on from understanding what faith is to considering what faith does. So how is faith defined? That's verse 1. What does faith do? That's verses 2 through the end of the chapter. And so after defining what faith is, the Holy Spirit gives us many examples, this, this great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 is talking about. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that's before us with endurance. Well, what is that race? That race is the race of faith. What is the cloud of witnesses? It's those who have gone before us and who have been faithful to God unto the end. We are to join in with them in living a life of faith that honors God and run this race well, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. So that is, in summary, what we're looking at here in Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. So as we launch back into considering some of these examples in 11 of what it looks like to live by faith, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Father, there is nothing that we can do in this life that is not dependent upon faith. Having faith and exercising faith, Lord, this is the core and the substance of what it means to walk with you. Lord, that through Christ we've been redeemed, through Christ we've been set free from our sin by his Righteousness, we are counted righteous in your eyes. By his death, our sin has been dealt with before your judgment seat. By his resurrection, Lord, we have our vindication and we have our great hope that if we are in him, we are already acceptable before you and we are already seated with him in the heavenly places, Lord. You've given us great hope in Christ. Father, your word tells us the only way we're going to live lives that are, that are honoring to you and that uphold the glory of those truths is by living lives of faith. And so I pray that you would help us understand what it means to do that this morning. Lord, I'm very inadequate. Uh, we are, are very imperfect, Lord, and we are not going to proclaim or hear these truths rightly if you don't come to help us do it. So, Lord, help us, even here in this moment, be here in faith, exercising faith, trusting, trusting in you to be our God and to give us all that we need for life and godliness through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, be with those who are not among us. Many are sick. Many are at home. And, uh, Lord, I just I ask that you administer to them in a very special way, or that though they are out side of this corporate assembly, Lord, that they would know that they are still in our hearts, Lord, that they are still in our thoughts, and that they are not outside of the reach of your hand. Lord, minister to them with your truth, and we look forward very soon to being rejoined in corporate fellowship together with them. Father, may your blessing attend us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
so we're looking at the examples of what it means to live by faith in Hebrews uh, that are given us in Hebrews chapter 11. Just kind of in summary, all of this has been summary so far. But in verse 3, um, what we've already looked up to this point, what we've already seen up to this point is uh, uh, many, different, many different things of what it means to live a life of faith. Verse 3 tells us that living a life of faith means living life with a right perspective of reality. That we do not live in a world that exists on its own. We don't live under the rule of anyone who has that right on their own. All things have been created by the spoken word of God. And therefore, we exist as creatures of God in God's world. And if we're going to live a life of faith, we must start with that foundational reality, that perspective that everything in this world belongs to God, even ourselves. And everything in this world is designed to serve his ends. Verse 4 tells us that faith is what actually enables us to offer acceptable worship to God. Uh, even as Abel offered worship unto the Lord, even while he was being persecuted, it says. His faith enabled him to worship the Lord. And so if we're going to be those who live lives of worship unto the Lord, then we must do so in faith. Verse 5 tells us that by faith, we can cultivate a day-by-day, moment-by-moment communion with Christ the way that Enoch did. Enoch walked with God. How did he walk with God? He walked with God by faith. It wasn't some physical manifestation of God walking alongside of him throughout his days in this world. He was living by faith in an unseen reality of God, and he was honoring God by seeking to, to cultivate a communion with him moment by moment. And that same pattern is listed here for us to follow, that if we would be those who honor God with our lives, then we also must be those who in faith seek to cultivate that kind of communion with him. Verse 6, it tells us this is, in fact, the only way that we can live a life that's pleasing to God. We have to believe that God exists, and we have to believe that he is willing and able and ready to reward those who seek him. That is the motivation behind seeking the Lord. It is the reward, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeking God for the reward as long as you define that reward appropriately. What is that reward that we get from seeking God? It's not health, wealth, riches, prosperity, new homes, new job, car. It may include some of those things. God may give us those blessings, but that's not the reward that he has promised for those who seek him. The reward for those who seek him is, as Joy just said, it is God himself. And so if we would receive that reward, we would be those who live in fellowship and enjoyment of that communion with God. What we just sang about in Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, in your presence is joy and gladness. If we would be those who would inherit that reward, then we must be those who live lives of faith, because that's the only means of getting it. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And if we live our lives in light of that, then we will be living lives that are pleasing in his sight. Now, from there, verses 7 through 12 and Hebrews 11 focus our attention in on three believers from the Old Testament. Three believers who persevered in living a life of faith and who now consequently serve as examples for us of the kind of life the Holy Spirit is calling us to believe or to live. Can't believe a life, but you can live a life. These three believers serve as examples and illustrations of what it means for you and me to live our lives by faith in the Lord. First the one that we have here is Noah. And what we have in Noah is uh, the example of walking by faith in godly fear. 
walking by faith in godly fear. The second one we have is Abraham. And what we see in Abraham is what it looks like to walk by faith in steadfast obedience. To walk by faith in steadfast obedience. And then the third one that we have is Sarah. And I love this one about Sarah. In Sarah, what we see is what it means to walk by faith in the power of God. Walking by faith in the power of God. So those are the three things we're going to look at. And then we're going to close today by seeing the reward of faith. So notice with me the example of Noah. In Noah, we see the example of walking by faith in godly fear. Verse 7 says, By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So in Noah, what we see here is this pairing of genuine faith with godly fear. And if we would live a life of faith that honors the Lord, then we, mean, uh, then we must live our lives in godly fear. Notice, first of all, that God awakened Noah to faith with a warning. You see in that verse that it was by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Now we, saw, we see when this happened, this was in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where God looked upon the world and saw that it was corrupt. God determined that he was going to wipe the world out in the floodwaters of his judgment that the world was going to be purged from its evil by his wrath. He determined to do that, but verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is, he found grace in God's eyes. Now, when God came to express that grace that Noah found in his eyes, what did God do? Well, it says here that he came, in verse 13, he came to warn Noah about what was going to happen and to give him instructions about how he can be saved from the judgment that was coming. So that is what the grace of God does in the life of a sinner that he is wanting to save and redeem for himself. The grace of God comes, first of all, with a warning about what is about to happen and with instructions about how we can be delivered from what's coming. Now, I know some people are turned off by the many warnings that appear in God's word. They don't want a preacher to get up and rail about the warnings of God's wrath and judgment, right? Hell, fire, brimstone, that kind of preaching. I know that that turns some people off, but I think what we need to see here with Noah is that God giving this warning to him about the wrath that was coming was actually a sign that Noah had found favor in his eyes. In other words, the fact that God warned Noah about wrath that was coming was an expression of God's love and desire to save Noah. So often we get this, this, this contrary picture that when wrath and judgment and the anger of God and the vindictive holiness of God falling down upon the world of the ungodly and decimating them, we get this picture of those kinds of warnings as if that is God just speaking out in anger. He's just putting a tough boot of despotic rule down on this world and expecting us just to submit and be subjugated 
It's like, that's not, that's not the point, though, behind God making known the coming judgment of his wrath. His design in warning us about the judgment to come is actually to draw us in and cause us to seek refuge where we can be safe. The warnings of God are real. And they are every much, very, uh, in, in every syllable of those warnings is, is, is as applicable to you and me as it is to those who are outside of the four walls of this church living in ungodliness. Those warnings of coming wrath apply to you just as much as they apply to anyone else. Do you believe that? If you don't, i got a good book for you. You can, you can talk with me afterward. The warnings are real. God's warnings in his word are real. The warnings in the book of Hebrews apply to every single one of us in this room. They're designed to shake us up. They're designed to make us feel uncomfortable where we are. You know that, right? They're designed to spark within us a fire of holy and right fear of God that will not be birthed in us in any other way. They're designed to arouse us out of our sinful dullness and lethargy and presumption and birth within us a pure and holy motivation to turn back to the Lord in repentance. That's what they're designed to accomplish. And what God's intention is in doing that, God's intention in that is to turn us from the things that we are engaging in that are actually inviting the wrath of God to fall on us and to cause us to flee from those things and seek refuge where he has promised we will be saved. This design, you can see this all over the scriptures, where God, when he wants to redeem a people, when he wants to save a people and deliver them from the wrath that is coming, he begins by giving them a warning that wrath is coming. See, because you're never going to want to be saved unless you understand what you need to be saved from. Right? So, for example, we see this in John the Baptist's ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, what was John's whole ministry designed to do? He was coming to prepare the way of the Lord, wasn't he? He was coming to, to, to knock down the high places and to raise up the low places and make everything a level plane so that all flesh would be able to see the salvation of God. That was John's purpose. That was the intent of God behind his ministry. It was redemptive. But when John came to knock down those hills and to raise up those valleys, what was he actually doing in his call to the people to see the salvation of God? He was calling them to repent because of the wrath that was coming. In other words, his ministry was a warning to the people that they better turn from what they're doing and turn to the Lord in order to be saved. So John came to prepare the way of the Lord, and he did that by warning the people to repent of their sins, not not to allow them to live in presumption upon the kindness and favor of God, but to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because John said in verse 10, just listen to this. Listen to this wording and, and hear the severe warning that is in this verse. If, if this doesn't strike at your soul, I would wonder if you're alive. Okay? Listen to this warning. 
John tells the people, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. What does that mean? That means that whoever's holding that axe is ready to chop the tree down. It's right there. He's, you know, whenever you go to cut wood, who, who in here likes cutting wood? I like cutting wood. You know, when you go to cut wood, what's the first thing you do with that axe? You put it right where you want to strike, right? You lay that axe right down there on the top of that wood, and then you come back and finish the stroke through. That's the picture that John is painting here whenever he's dealing with these people who need to turn away from their presumption against the Lord and turn to Christ and be saved. He's telling them, listen, you think that you're okay, but in fact, in reality, God's axe is already being lined up to strike you down. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that will not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, when God, these Jews didn't believe that that would actually happen to them. They believed that they were God's special chosen people, and therefore they would never experience the wrath of God. And John is here warning them, saying, listen, God does not show partiality, guys. If you want to live in presumption upon his grace, then you will not be one who receives the blessing of his grace. You must repent just like everyone else if you would be saved. Now the point in bringing that up is simply to get to the fact that when God wanted to call Israel to salvation in his son, he sent a preacher to warn them about the wrath that was coming. And he did the same here with Noah. He was warning Noah about things that were not yet seen. But a warning only accomplishes its purpose if it is responded to appropriately. And so you see in verse 7, in response to God warning Noah about what was coming, it says, in reverence, he prepared an ark. That is, when he was awakened to see the judgment that was coming, he actually, he actually took measures to see if he could get delivered from it. <laughs> he... he uh, he responded to the reality of that wrath by seeking to find somewhere for safety. I think the NASB and the ESV here are, are very poor translations. And I know you guys have heard that the last couple weeks, but uh, let, me, let me tell you why. The, ES, or the NASB says here that in reverence, Noah prepared an ark. And that seems to, that seems to partner... Uh, the reverence with the attitude that Noah had as he was preparing the ark. But in Greek, that's not exactly what's being communicated. What's being communicated in Greek is that this reverence Noah had was a response or a fruit of being warned by God. So the word itself is actually fear or to become anxious. So Noah being warned by God, the Greek says, and becoming anxious prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now, once again, I think the new King James comes to our rescue. And uh, it says, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. That's the sense that's being gotten out in Greek. That's the idea here. It's not just that God warned Noah about what was coming, it was that Noah was moved with godly fear by the warning, right? And becoming anxious, Noah responded in faith. He took action in light of what he had perceived to be coming. 
It's one thing to know that judgment is coming. It's quite another for the revelation of that reality to be pressed upon you so forcefully that in fear you take appropriate action to avoid it. How a person responds to God's warnings in Scripture reveals the presence or the absence of genuine faith. Now, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding here when we're talking about walking in fear, the kind of fear that scriptures call believers to have in, the, uh, in their lives. We are called to fear the Lord, but there is a difference between a godly fear and an ungodly fear, and that difference is simple. Ungodly fear of the Lord will always drive you to run away from Him and towards sin. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were afraid after they had sinned, and the Lord was drawing near to them. They were afraid, and what did they do in response in that fear? They ran away. They hid themselves from God. That is an ungodly fear. That's a fear of, of wrath and terror, of judgment. That, that's not, not, not exactly the kind of fear that God wants his people to have. Godly fear, which is the fear that Noah is manifesting here, Godly fear that is connected with faith is the kind of fear that always moves you to flee from sin with urgency and it sends you running to the Lord, not away from Him. So ungodly fear will always drive you away from God. Godly fear will woo you towards the Lord and will bring you closer to Him. The presence of that kind of fear is one of the clearest evidences that you have been given the gift of faith. That you have a fear of God that causes you to draw near to Him and to take appropriate action to be saved from the judgment that is coming. Proverbs 9.10, it says that this is where true wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And uh, that is the kind of fear that Noah had here. And that's the kind of fear he was walking in. And as a result, he gained a reward for himself, didn't he? He prepared an ark and he gained the reward of salvation for his household. And then more importantly, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Because he acted in faith and godly fear. So what does faith look like? Faith looks like walking in godly fear in our lives. Second example to look at here is from Abraham, where walking by faith is seen in steadfast obedience. See in verse, verse 8, it says that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, Abraham is listed as an example of true faith many times in the scriptures. For example, you see in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, Abraham is held up as the model of justifying faith. What does it mean to be justified before the Lord by faith? Well, it means that you follow the pattern of Abraham. You believe the word that God speaks, and God credits it to you as righteousness. Right? So he's the model of justifying faith. In James chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, he's also the model of what it means to persevere in living a life of faith. 
You see this here, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now, I don't have time to camp on this, and I'm sure you're going to be thankful for that, but you notice here that justifying faith, even though it actually does accomplish justification, still has to be perfected. Faith has to be perfected, and faith is perfected through uh, being exercised in godly works, good, good deeds. Now, this is what, the, what James is hitting at, hinting at there is what Hebrews 11 is focusing on. It's focusing on Abel's, uh, Abel's, Abraham's example of living an obedient life of faith in light of God's promises, even though he never actually saw those promises being fulfilled. Now, the specific focus here is on God's promise of land. So verse 8 points out that the reason Abraham went out to receive a place to inherit in the first place is that it was in response to God's call for him to do it. You remember the story in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God came to Abraham in Haran, and God manifested himself to him and made some promises to him. One of those promises being the promise of inheriting the land of Canaan. And then God called Abraham to leave behind his old life, and to trust in God enough to take him at his word and actually go out and receive what he was promising to give him. Now again, just like Noah, what we found in Noah, the foundation of living a life of faith for Abraham was the initiating work of God. Noah started to build an ark because God came to Noah and warned him about what was coming. Abraham obeyed the will of the Lord because God came to Abraham and let him know what his will was. God was the initiator in both of these circumstances. And when God came to Abraham and made these promises to him, he was birthing in Abraham that kind of faith that Hebrews 11.1 1 is talking about. This was a, a calling from God that made Abraham know that from now on, this is the God who is real and the true God. And these were the promises that belonged to him. Now Hebrews 11.8 says that Abraham responded to God in faith by obeying God's call. That's what I want to focus on here. Abraham's faith was proven to be genuine because he obeyed what God had called him to do. Now there are two ways that Abraham's obedience manifests undaunted faith in, this, in these verses. This is what the writer of Hebrews picks up on. In verse 8, it says that Abraham, in faith, after being called, went out not knowing where he was going. Now, faith doesn't have to see the fulfillment of God's promises in order to believe that they are true or in order to act upon them. Abraham left behind his work his family, his home, his career, in a sense, he left behind all of his earthly security in order to go to a place where God was calling him to go and yet never knew exactly where he was going, at least not until he got there. Now, had Abraham waited around until God unveiled to him the whole plan of what the Lord wanted to do in his life, would Abraham ever have moved forward to go into the promised land? No, he wouldn't. 
No, what motivated Abraham was this unveiling of the character and the nature of the living and true God and the promises that that God had made to him. Abraham believed in God enough to act upon his word, even though he didn't see how it was all going to play out. You know, most people don't mind going where God wants them to go so long as God lets them know all the details about how they're going to get there. We want to know all the specifics of the plan. We want God to give us the map with the route highlighted at every turn and every curve, right? I want to know exactly where I'm going, Lord, if I'm going to follow you. Well, faith doesn't work like that. In fact, if faith did work like that, what would be the object of your faith? Would it be God? Would it be the character of God? Would it be his promise to keep you no matter what? His promise never to leave you nor forsake you? His declaration that he delights in your well-being? Would it be his promise in Christ Jesus that he will bring you fully to the end and bring you to glory? That would not be the object of your faith. What would be the object of your faith? Your own understanding of what God's doing in your life. Now, we operate like that very often, right? Our faith waxes and wanes based upon what we understand God to be doing in our lives, don't we? I mean, maybe I'm the only one. No? Am I in a camp of others who are struggling like that? Man, if I'm not, I need to go somewhere else. You guys need a different pastor. Faith doesn't work like that. God calls us, he gives us just enough revelation to call us to act, to take one step. And you know what happens when we take that one step? We may not know where we're going when we take that first step, but once we take the step, God gives us just a little bit more light to know where the second step is going to be. And if you're never trusting God enough to take one step, then you are never going to find from God a revelation of the second step. Do you understand that? Abraham serves as an example for us because he did not know where he was going when he chose to obey God and to believe His promise. God didn't tell him where he wanted Abraham to go. I find this fascinating. God comes to Abraham and says, go, leave your family, leave your land, leave your past, go to a land that I will show you and I will give you as an inheritance. But he didn't actually tell him what direction to go. He didn't tell him to go east, west, north, south. And yet Abraham just says, oh, okay, Lord, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go. And he just starts walking and guess where Abraham lands up? He ends up right where God wants him to be. God didn't tell him, hey, I want you to go here. I want you to go down to Canaan. I want you to go down. Well, he never wanted him to go to Egypt. But he didn't tell Abraham, hey, I want you to go to this place and then camp out and then I'll talk with you more there. He just said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to start walking. Just go. Don't worry. I got this. I'm going to get you where I want you to be. You don't need to know where you're going in order to get there. I'm going to get you there. You just trust me. Well, Abraham followed through in faith in that, and by that, he became an example for us of what it looks like to live by faith. We don't necessarily have to know where we're going, but we do have to know the God who's going to get us there, right? God is the object of our faith, not our understanding of his will for us. So we walk by faith, 
and we follow with steadfast obedience with Abraham. Now that's one thing that this text brings up as a manifestation of Abraham's faith. Secondly, you see in verse 9 that Abraham not only went out in faith obeying God's call, but then once he had gotten to the place where God wanted him to be, he spent the rest of his days living by faith in a promise that was never fulfilled, at least not in his time. And by that, he becomes an example of what it means not only to act in faith, but to live in faith. After arriving in the promised land, it says, by faith, verse 9, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now, once again, Abraham uh, was called by God to come to the promised land. And once he got there, God revealed, this is exactly where I want you to be. Go walk through its breadth and length. I want you to see this land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. But after Abraham had gotten there and had roamed around the land, you know, Abraham was roaming around the promised land for 100 years. Got there when he was 75, died when he was 175. A hundred solid years of walking in a land of promise that was never actually given to him. By the time he got to that promised land and started walking around a couple of years, I think that if I were him, I would start wondering if I'd been sold a bill of goods. Right? Did I misunderstand God's will? Did I, did I not hear the call right? Now wait, God, you said you were going to give me land, Right? You said you were going to give me as an inheritance the land that was going to be mine? Well, here I am, Lord. I'm in this land, and you still haven't given it to me. What's going on? Did I, did I miss your will here? Boy, you know as well as I do that that can attack you like, like none other. Lord, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem to fit with the promises you've made to me. My life isn't going exactly the way I thought it was going to go. Did, did, I, did I take a wrong step somewhere? Well... Just look at this. Look at, look at how Abraham was living in the promised land. It says that when he got to the land where the Lord wanted him to be, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. You know what that means? It means he was a stranger there. It was still the land of promise, but it was not, it was not a promise that he saw realized in his own life. It says that he was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Dwelling in tents. What does that mean? That means he wasn't settled. Yeah, he was camping out. It wasn't, it wasn't permanent. It wasn't anything. There was no sense in his, in his heart or soul that this was exactly where he was going to be planted for the rest of his days. He was a wanderer. And then you notice it was also not just with Abraham. It was with Isaac and Jacob that he was, he, that he was living as a sojourner in the land of promise. That means to the generation of his grandchildren, Abraham was not seeing the promise God made to him fulfilled. Now, you and I struggle whenever we go a week without seeing God's answer to, answer to one of our prayers. Imagine going a hundred years, seeing your grandchildren not inherit the fullness of the promise that the Lord had made to you. Nevertheless, Abraham continued to live in that land by faith. How do we know that? Because he remained there. With all of its trials, with the famines, the threatenings of war, the issues with Lot, the issues with Abimelech, 
Abraham never went back to where the Lord had called him out of. He stayed right where the Lord wanted him to be. Now, why did he do that? Verse 10 gives us the answer. What strengthened Abraham to live in the land of promise while he never actually received that promise? What made him strong enough to live in that land by faith? Well, verse 10 says, it was because he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, and I know that if I start to do it as if I were in my study, your eyes would glaze over even more. But at the core, what this verse is telling us, and this is really important for you to understand, what this verse is telling us is that Abraham was content to live in the land of promise, even as a stranger, because he ultimately was not living to inherit the land of promise. He was living for the city of God. Now following me here. I get it. Abraham was empowered to continue living in the land of promise even though he never received that land as God had promised. Because Abraham ultimately wasn't living for that land. What was he living for? Not a little track of land in the Middle East. That's not what was motivating Abraham. The motivation in Abraham's heart was that he was looking for something that could not be found in this world. He was looking for something that God was building. He was looking for something that God had designed. Something with foundations. Something that was eternal. Something that was everlasting. Verse 16 says something that was heavenly. Listen, I know Abraham was given a land promise. You know what's very fascinating about the land promise? Everybody makes a big deal about the promise of the, of the land to Abraham. You know what? Hebrew or Romans chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that that land promise was actually a promise that Abraham would inherit the entire earth. Not just a tract of land in the Middle East. So what was he living for? He was strengthened to live by faith because his eyes were fixed upon something greater than what this world had to offer. He could endure years of not being satisfied with the fulfillment of God's promises to him in this world because he was living for something greater. He was living for the world that was to come in the language of Hebrews 2. See, Abraham was actually seeking not a physical land, but he was seeking, you guys know the, the Augustine's book, The City of God. Abraham was seeking after the city of God. And that's what gave him the strength to live by faith in this world. He was seeking after a city that had a permanent foundation. And he persevered in faith through the long years of his life, waiting on God's promises to be feel, fulfilled because his soul had been awakened to pursue something far greater than anything that could be found in this world. And eventually, after a hundred years of wandering around in the land of Canaan, not seeing the fulfillment of that promise, you know what the Lord did? The Lord gave him exactly what he was looking for. 
Genesis 25, verse 8, it says, After a hundred years, Abraham being 175 at this point, he breathed his last, and the Lord gathered him together with his people. Love that language, because that tells us death is not the end. Right? Death is the point at which we are gathered into our people. Whichever people that may be, the God-haters or the redeemed of the Lord. But at that point, Abraham was gathered into his people and God took him home to the eternal city that the Lord had established. This is what Hebrews 12.22 goes on to talk to describe as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's, that's when Abraham got what he was looking for. It wasn't about the land. It was about God. And it was about being with God. And that's what strengthened him to live a life of faith for God. God was his object and God was his reward. And eventually the Lord gave him the full measure of that reward. He took him home to heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is what Jesus, described, Jesus called this in, in Luke 16, 22, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. A wonderful picture of the consolation that Abraham himself received when the Lord brought him home to glory. Now, my question in relation to that is, what are you living for? Right. Here's the application of, of Abraham's example for us. What are you living for? If you are living for things in this world, beloved, it is never going to strengthen you to live a life that is worthy of God. If you are always judging God's dealings with you based upon what happens to you in this world, you are never going to be strengthened by God to live a life of faith for Him. Now confess, be honest, and repent of the sin. You know you judge God's dealings with you based on how you perceive His dealings with you in this world. And the life of Abraham tells us, it comes alongside of us, and it says, brother, sister, don't judge the faithfulness of the Lord by your own weak, limited perception. Seek after the city that has foundations. That's what it's all about. Now, this is, this is dangerous, and I don't want to get into speculation here, but I wonder, I just wonder, why did the Lord not give Abraham the full inheritance of the land during his life? Now, I understand they, got, they had to go to Egypt. You know, they had to have descendants uh, multiply innumerably as the stars in, in the heavens and such. But, but God could have done that without sending them to Egypt. Why is it that God reserved that blessing, kept it back from Abraham, and didn't let him enjoy the fullness of it? At least not this side of eternity. Well, I think it's so that he didn't become satisfied with anything lesser than what God ultimately intended for him. Meandering around in the land of Canaan made him long for something that had foundation, something that was lasting, something that was built by God himself. And eventually the Lord brought him there. What are we living for? What's our motivation in life? You know how we can tell that Abraham was not living for the things of this world? Because he openly and manifestly was living as a sojourner. I wonder if, 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 if people looked in on our lives, our homes, how we live, how we spend our money, if they could look into our thought life and really evaluate where we're at, I wonder if they would, they would categorize us as someone who is a sojourner in this world. 
are our lives manifesting that we are, we are simply pilgrims passing through this time and we are, living, we are living for God and we are dwelling here during this time in nothing but tents. This isn't where we want to settle. This isn't where we want to be. We want something greater. Do people know that about us? Do our lives manifest that? Just a question. All right, so that's Abraham. Now, thirdly, an example of Sarah. Try to run through this one a little more quickly. Sarah is an example of faith in that she was an example of walking by faith in the power of God. You see in verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, the word ability here, it can be translated as able. It can also be translated as power. Sarah received the ability to conceive. Sarah received the power to conceive. Though she was always barren, right? She's described as the barren Sarah in Genesis chapter 11. And even though now being 90 years old, she was well past physical ability to conceive and bear children, she still, this text says, believed in God's promise, considered God to be faithful, and as a result, received power to do the impossible, to conceive and bear a child. Now, some of you might be saying, wait, I, I know the story about Sarah in Genesis 18. And I know that the account of Sarah in Genesis 18 does not manifest anything except unbelief in Sarah's heart. It doesn't magnify her faith in the Lord. Genesis 18 verse 12 actually says that when God told Abraham that she, that Sarah would bear a son, Sarah laughed at him. And it's not like a, oh man, that's awesome kind of laugh. It's a, are you crazy kind of laugh. It's a mocking laugh. Sarah was mocking the Lord in light of what he said because she was judging his abilities based on her perception of reality. Doesn't sound like faith to me, does it? Well, that's true, but you remember how the Lord responded to Sarah, right? What did the Lord do in response? When she laughed, God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like coming to Adam and Eve who are wandering away from the Lord after they fell into sin. And, and God comes and he says, where are you? Well, God knows perfectly well where they are, right? So what is God doing whenever he asks, where are you? He's making them realize where they are. See where you are. Repent, return. Same thing here. God knows exactly why Sarah laughed. Why did Sarah mock God? God knows. It's because she didn't believe in him. But his intention was to help Sarah understand where Sarah was. Help Sarah understand why she laughed. Why did she laugh? In verse 14, the Lord rebukingly in love says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's the issue. Sarah was mocking the word of God because she didn't believe God could do it. Until the Lord rebuked her with the truth. And cut through the lies that had spun a web around her mind. The Lord responds to Sarah saying, is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
it may be impossible for you, but is it impossible for me to do this? Is your perspective on my abilities really that shallow that you think that I cannot do what I said I would do despite your limitations? Obviously, Sarah didn't believe that God could do that, but with the rebuke came the awakening of faith. It was the Lord wielding the sword of the truth against Sarah's doubts that awakened her to remember, wait a second, no, 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 no. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the God of life, the God who gave life to all things, the God who made this world. He can do whatever he wants to do. Wait, I need to remember, not only can he do whatever he wants to do, but when he makes a promise, he will do what he promises he will do. He is able. And so, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Sarah received ability to conceive and bear a child because she counted him faithful who had promised. See, that is what the Lord was doing in Sarah. And in Sarah, what we find is this, this picture of what it means to live by faith in a God of almighty power for whom nothing is impossible. In your life, there are things that seem insurmountable. There are things in my life that seem absolutely impossible. Preparing to get up behind this pulpit Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday always seems impossible. And sometimes it feels impossible. And the experience is, man, that's impossible to bear his preaching. But, but is God not faithful? Right, like, put some rubber on these tires in your own life. What are the impossible things that God has called you to do that you cannot do apart from His power? Can you even identify them? You know what that shows? It shows your shallowness, the shallowness of your experience with God. If there's nothing in your life where you are thinking, man, this is absolutely impossible, and I cannot accomplish this without God. If you're not living like that, then, beloved, you are not living by faith and seeking to do what the Lord's called you to do. Because everything God calls us to do is impossible. Don't you know that? If you're reading the Scriptures rightly to renew your mind in the truth of God's Word and to purify your heart before His holy presence in His Word, if you're doing that the right way, when you come to the Word of God, you will feel how impossible it is to accomplish the end for which God has ordained it. When you go to pray, if you are actually praying the way the Lord intends for you to pray, about the things that He's called you to pray, you will feel how impossible it is for anything to be done apart from the mighty power of God. And if you're praying about things that you yourself can do in your own power, then you are not entering into a prayer life of faith. And you, you apply that across the board. Anything. In your parenting. If you're trying to figure out how to be a godly parent the way the Lord has called you to be a godly parent and somehow you don't find yourself crying out to God for strength to do the impossible in the lives of your children, then you are not parenting them the way he's called you to. Just take that on to anything. Right? Your attitude at work, how you live your life, 
in any other way. If you are living your life the way that God has called you to live your life, there will always be the conflict between your perception of what is real and and what you are capable of doing and the realities of faith that tell you that God is greater and he can accomplish anything. So that is the example of Sarah. What does it mean to walk by faith according to the example of Sarah? It means that we live with God in an understanding that he's the God of the impossible. And whatever he's called us to do, he will empower us to do. We simply must take steps of faith and believe that he will empower us to do it. Now, in summary, verse 13 is really a summary verse of everything that we've looked at so far up to this point. It gets to the point where the writer of Hebrews says, all of these died in faith. These are talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah specifically. Right? These died in faith. Love the language in the Greek here. I wish everyone could read Greek. I really do. And it's not impossible. If you want to learn to read Greek, I'd love to help you. But in Greek, the way this is constructed, it's, 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 it's communicating to us that the overriding, the governing rule and factor over their lives was the principle of faith. That they were, they were living in such a way, they were enduring in the faith to such a degree that when we can look back on their lives, we can say that up to the point of death, they were controlled by this principle of faith. That's the Christian life. But what did it look like to live that way? Well, here's where it describes it more fully in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. That that is, without actually tangibly holding the fulfillment of the promises in their hands. Yet, having seen them, having seen the promises, and having welcomed those promises from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, that's the nature of saving and persevering faith. You may not be able to say, I can tangibly hold what God has promised me in my hand. But by faith, you see those promises. This is what I'm getting at in verse 1. When it talks about faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, it is actually the substance of those things being pressed in upon you so that even though you cannot see them with your physical eyes, you are seeing them with the eyes of faith. They're just as real as if you had seen them with your physical eyes. This is what faith does. Faith enables us to see what we cannot see and then empowers us, in verse 13, to welcome those things. That is to receive them for ourselves. See, and seeing these promises, even though they had never actually received, never actually received them in hand, they still welcomed them from a distance. They were overjoyed by these promises. They were hoping in these promises. They were living in the light of these promises. They believed that these promises actually applied to them. And then you see, thirdly, this faith enabled them to confess these promises. How did they make that confession? They made that confession by living lives that reflected their hope in the truth of the promises of God. They all knew that God had promised them something better than what they could receive in this world or what they could lose in this world. 
And the way that they made that confession of hope was in the way that they lived their lives. Their lives proved that their confession of faith in those realities was true. We need to skip over some things. Now, let me just, in closing, I've kept you guys for a little while. So, in closing, what is the reward of this kind of life? What is the reward of faith? In verse 16, we find two things mentioned. First of all, the reward that these all received who have gone before us and the reward that you and I will receive if we are living lives of faith unto the Lord, we will receive the reward of God not being ashamed of us. Verse 16, therefore, that is, in light of, this, this, in light of them all living lives of faith, seeing and receiving and confessing things that they could not yet hold in their hands, but things that they were seeking after, turning their backs on the world and everything in the world in order to pursue those things that God had promised to give them, Because they lived lives like that, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. If you know anything about yourself, you know what a scandal that is. (laughs) You've heard me say before, I'm ashamed. (laughs) I'm ashamed to be called by my name. What things in your life have you done that fill you with utter shame and embarrassment? And yet God can look upon us, those who live lives of hope and trust and faith, looking to him, away from ourselves and looking to him and his promises. God can look upon us and say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Think about how that manifests in the Old Testament. When God came to Moses and revealed himself to Moses, how did God describe himself? He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Do you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were worthy of God identifying himself with them? Filled with fear, lying, adulterous, faithless. And yet the Lord can look upon them and say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they lived their lives in faith, not in who they were and in their own abilities, but in faith in the God who had made promises to them, believing that he would keep them. See, that's that's where faith really comes to bear upon our lives. When you can look in the mirror and see all of your own inadequacies and see all of your own failings and all the reasons why God should not love you, you can look upon all of that and still in that moment believe that because of Jesus Christ, God's love is for me. That's faith. You wake up in the morning and you feel abandoned by the Lord. You come to the Lord in faith and you say, Lord, you have sworn you have every reason to abandon me. What I did yesterday is enough to make you want to abandon me, or it ought to be. And yet you say in Christ, you will never forsake me. You will never leave me. You will never cut me off. 
He cut his son off so that he would never do that, guys. It's what it means to live a life of faith. So it says, God will not be ashamed of us. Jesus swore this to us in Matthew 10, 32. He said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, if you are not ashamed to confess Christ before men, not just with your words, but with the way you live your life, you're not ashamed to confess and own Christ before men. Jesus makes this promise. I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Revelation 3.5 gives the same promise. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and his holy angels. For the believer, there is no greater reward that we can live for than on the final day of glory when Christ Jesus is revealed to hear him, to hear him from the throne of grace declare our names and say, I'm not ashamed of you. No better reward for us to live for. Now, that's how oh, I want to I launch into that more. But let's move into the second one. Hebrews eleven sixteen gives us a second reward. Not only is God not ashamed to be our God, but it also says for those who live by faith, he has prepared a place for them. See, to live by faith is not only to experience the rejection of the world, it's not only to experience the trial that comes upon us for choosing to live for unseen realities. It's not only experiencing the oppression and the persecution that will come upon us. It's also making the decision to turn our back on everything that the world has to offer. So it's not only the trial of the world hating us for following God. Following God it is also the trial of turning away from the things that naturally we would enjoy in order to pursue something greater. Right? That is a life of faith. And God says, for those who live that way, I have prepared a place for you with me. And no matter what you lose or experience in this world, it will be worth it in my presence. John 14, you guys know, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many, what? There are many rooms, right? And what did Jesus say he was going to do for us? He was going there to prepare a place for us. That is, Jesus was going to make one of those rooms ours. He's going to put our name on the door. And then he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you unto myself. Do you believe that promise? Does that empower you and encourage you to live a life of faith for the Lord God, no matter what it costs? Because, guys, it's going to get more costly in our day, we have to keep our eyes fixed on these examples of what it means to live by faith, and we've got to hold on to the reward. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we do that, the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more strength and power we will have to endure in running a race of faith. So let's be doing that. Let's be diligent. Would you pray with me? Father, I... I Pray, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith and help us run for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us live lives worthy of the gospel by which we've been called, Lord, by living our lives in faith, holding fast to that gospel. 
Lord, please bless us in our closing hymn. Help us offer up to you a song of worship in response to what we've heard from your word. And fill us, Lord, with a holy devotion and the ability to live according to your will for the rest of our days. Lord, help us endure to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Benediction comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May he do it in each one of our lives. May you go in the peace of that great shepherd. Amen.